I am now joined by both Aniket Alal, head of ETF data and analytics at CFRA, and Todd Sohn, ETF and technical strategist at Strategas. And as I mentioned at the top, Aniket and Todd are simply two of the very best in the business when it comes to uh, covering ETFs, or two of the smartest ETF analysts out there. Now, if you're not familiar with CFRA, they're one of the world's leading independent investment research firms. Strategas is an institutional brokerage and advisory firm who has been ranked as the top macro-only research firm by Institutional Investor. And Aniket is now joining me from Las Vegas, and Todd is on the line with me from New York. Gentlemen, Happy New Year to you, and uh, welcome back to ETF Prime. Uh, Happy New Year, and it's great to be back on. Hey, Nate. Happy New Year. All right, so uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this. You both have recently produced uh, research notes on some key ETFs and key ETF trends to watch this year. And I thought, given that you both bring uh, unique perspectives to the table, it would be fun to do a little roundtable on these and just bat around the different ideas. And so why don't we do this? Why don't I first tee up Anakit's four ETF trends to watch in uh, 2024? We can discuss and debate those. And then, Todd, we can go through your uh, four contrarian ETF ideas for 2024. And I'll tell you both, uh, no ground rules here. I'll just bring up each topic. And again, we can bat them around. So does it, that, that work for both of you? Sounds great. Yes, indeed. Let's go. All right. So, Aniket, the first ETF trend you highlighted to watch in 2024 is the unbundling of emerging markets exposure. And you say that for many years, investors have accessed emerging markets uh, via broad ETFs, right? Like the iShares Core MSCI Emerging Markets ETF, ticker IEMG. But you think that might change this year. So uh, explain your thinking around this. That's right, Nate. You know, these broad emerging market ETFs is the way most U.S. investors have got exposure to emerging market equities. These broad ETFs account for just under 60% of emerging market equity exposure in the U.S. There's one big problem, and the problem is that China makes up about 25 to 30% of the weight of these ETFs. And so when China underperforms, the strategy doesn't really work. I mean, if you look at 2023, a lot of the China-focused ETFs like GXC, uh, FXI, which is the iShares China large cap ETF, they were all down in anywhere from 11 to 13 percent. Whereas if you look at emerging markets ex-China, that was up about almost 20 percent. So we're talking about a 30 percent spread here between emerging markets ex-China and you know Chinese ETFs last year. And you know if China continues to struggle, there's obviously structural issues. You know. Companies look re-looking at their supply chains, um, political issues between tensions between the U.S. and China, and so forth. You know, we think investors may relook at how they get their emerging markets exposure, and they may unbundle by trying to combine emerging markets ex-China with China ETFs and calibrate that more carefully, or maybe you know use more targeted country-specific ETFs. And in fact, this trend has already kind of started. If you look at EMXC last year, it took in 4.7 billion in inflows, actually overtook Schwab's SCHE in terms of net assets. And so, you know, that's a trend we think worth keeping an eye on, particularly given the important role for China as the second largest economy and its, and its kind of strategic role in supply chains. So that's one of our first trends for next for this year. 
Anakit, what would be some uh, ETF options that you might point to if investors do want to take this approach? So is it looking to, to ex-China ETFs or are there specific EM countries you would point to? There's really three possible ways to do this. One is to take EMXC, you know, EMX China ETF, EMXC is the biggest one, and then pair that with a China ETF and then calibrate those. The other option would be to use um, targeted country ETFs and then kind of bundle those up into an emerging markets portfolio. And the third, and this is an interesting area, is there's basically new products that address this in more interesting ways one example is KEM, which is a Korean shares dynamic EM strategy. And what this fund does is essentially dynamic calibrates its China exposure to kind of address this issue. That's that's a relatively new fund. We'll have to see how it does, but it's an interesting take on, on this problem. So there's really multiple ways investors can kind of tackle this. Todd, I want to bring you in here and uh, certainly feel free to add any color to what Anakit just presented there. But the question I have for you is, look, every single year we keep hearing about how emerging markets are undervalued and how this is the year they're going to outperform. And that's not necessarily what, what Anakit is saying here, but I, I just feel like at the beginning of every year, emerging markets are always a topic where uh, you know people are saying, hey, investors, you need to look over it, it potentially increasing exposure here. And I feel like just about every year, we're disappointed, right? I, I actually talked about this at the end of last year, that if you look at SPY versus, uh, say, EEM over the past 10 years or, or even past 15 years, really since the global financial crisis, it is ugly. So, so for example, I ran this morning in the, uh, the past 10 years, SPY is up 208 percent and EEM is only up 22 percent. So do, do you think that could actually change, or are we going to see more disappointment from emerging markets this year? I, I, I mean, I, I, first of all, I love this term, unbundling, right? And, and to your point on all those statistics, will we see a change? Maybe, but I, I would question the durability of it, right? There's always times where you'll get laggards catching up, and it might last a quarter or a half. But then things mean revert back to, back to normal, and the U.S. remains the dominant investment landscape. So um, the flaws are still there for EM, and especially when China remains the dominant region. China has returned over the last 30 years uh, an annualized return of less than 1%. And so despite all the attention we give it and the story that's there, um, you've been offered poor returns, high volatility, and leave it to the ETF industry really to come and provide a solution, uh, such as those ex-China funds that, that Anakin mentioned. And so uh, I'm, I'm totally with the idea of unbundling and taking, taking a little bit more of an active approach going forward, even if performance does perk up. When, when you talk about unbundling, I saw in another uh, note you recently wrote, you had 10 ETFs to gauge first half 2024 market conditions. And I saw that you listed the Wisdom Tree India Earnings ETF ticker EPI. And you said this is the new emerging markets heavyweight. Um, do, do you mind elaborating on that? That that really caught my attention. Yeah. So it, it, even if you just purely look at India's weight in EM indices, it's it, I think I don't want to say it's doubled over the last decade. India seems to be the beneficiary of this divestment from China, and even even a move away from Latam to an extent. Latam was big back in the early two thousands, and now I think the attention and focus because of the demographic case for India, right? It's a growing country. I like the constituency. You have pretty large tech, financial, and consumer-type names. That's a nice mix. Uh, and so 
investors who need that emerging market exposure, they seem to be trafficking to EM. And so I want it to be at the forefront of that exposure if I need it, rather than, say, China or Taiwan and to extend LATAM, too. So I, I think the investors are really starting to vote there with how we um, see India's influence picking up within emerging market indices. All right, so this is a good one. Unbundling of emerging markets uh, exposure is the first trend you're watching, Anakit. The second key ETF trend you're watching this year is increased flows and competition in the active bond ETF category. And you note that active bond ETFs only account for about 11% of assets in the uh, bond ETF category. You, you also note that only one of the top 20 largest bond ETFs is active. That's the uh, JP Morgan Ultra Short Income ETF, ticker JPST. But do you, you, from what you wrote, it sounds like you think this could begin to meaningfully change this year. And so give us your rationale behind this one. Sure, Nate. I, one of the key developments last year was Vanguard expanding its presence in the active bond ETF space. And we know that Vanguard is is a giant. They also very rarely launch new products. So I think every time they do, it's, it's quite strategic and quite thoughtful. Uh, there's, as you pointed out, the... If, if we look at the you know the bond ETF space and aggregate, it seems like it's completely indexed. But if you look at actually get into the details, you see that there's some nuance there. When it comes to broad bond ETFs, when I say broad, I mean anything that kind of portfolios that hold you know assets across the duration and credit spectrum. Actually, there's a fair amount of active management. You know, it's almost 20% of broad bond ETFs are active. In contrast with treasury and corporate bond ETFs, which are only you know three to four percent active and so there's a couple of important points here one is that vanguard's entry puts it in in competition with more traditional active players you know players like dimensional jp morgan and first Trust, rather than it's it's kind of conventional competitors like you know blackrock and state street and also the fact that they offer much cheaper products in this space is going to be interesting their funds are at about 10 and 20 basis points relative to 35, 40 basis points for the competition. So given, you know, that's Vanguard, given that it's a space that has seen some success in active, we think this is an important trend to monitor this year. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. If you look that uh, Vanguard Core Plus Bond ETF ticker VPLS uh, that launched in December is coming in at 20 basis points. And I, I guess, Todd, the question that I would have for you here, and again, feel free to add any color to what Annika just walked through, but I'm curious as to your thoughts on this rise of active ETFs overall, because as Annika went through that, uh, clearly costs are playing a key role here, and we covered that a lot last year, right? When you look at the success of firms like Dimensional and Avantis and, and, and Vanguard, which I just mentioned in the active bond ETF space. And we, we all know that a lower fee that lowers the hurdle an active manager has to jump over to generate outperformance. This isn't rocket science, but do you think there's maybe too much focus being placed on fees but by investors and maybe not enough on what these ETFs are actually doing underneath the hood? Uh, perhaps. You know, I, I, fees are already much lower than I think they've historically been, right, especially compared to mutual funds. And to me, this is all about a vehicle shift. You've had some $800 billion out of actively managed fixed income mutual funds over the last two years. And so you have all these this roster of issuers now going into the ETF space. And I'll give you an anecdote, and this comes from Eric Valchunas at Bloomberg. They hosted an ETFs in depth event last month. And on one of the panels from 
some heavyweight issuers, they all agree that active fixed income is really the next space of growth. And so um, I will certainly respect the, uh, the folks who are up on that stage their opinion. And I think you're seeing it in the flows data. Anakin mentioned only 11% of ETFs, fixed income ETFs are active. And so that's the next major growth area. Um, fee, high fee or not, um, everyone's going to be involved there. Yeah, I agree with that. And if you look at the flows last year, we did see outsized flows into fixed income ETFs overall. And I think you're right, just given the uh, rate environment and, and even potentially the credit environment, depending upon what the economy does, you may have more investors that want uh, somebody at the wheel here on their, their fixed income uh, allocations. Um, all right, Anakit, your third ETF trend to watch this year is one where I think we might actually have a little bit of a debate on. Maybe not. We'll see. But uh, you're watching the continued growth of options-based ETFs. So covered call strategies like the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF, ticker JEPI, or the uh, Defined Outcome ETFs, Buffer ETFs. And you know how both of those categories underperformed last year uh, relative to the broader equity markets? But that did not stop investors from piling into these things. And so you think perhaps that's an indication these ETFs have longer-term staying power. Um, now, <laughs> where the debate comes in, you may or may not be aware, I'm already on record as saying I believe the entire covered call ETF category is a bubble. I, I think there are already way too many products out there. I feel like this was really a 2022 fad that carried over into last year. Um, I, I will say I do think defined outcome ETFs certainly have more specific use cases. And so I, I want to be clear, I don't view those as a fad. I'm more bullish on that category overall. But um, Anika, give us your perspective on the options-based ETF category. Yeah, Nate, as you said, you know, it's been interesting to look last year and see how many, you know, the, the, ad, the amount of flows these products took in despite the markets being going up as these, you know, these products are more suited for flat or kind of uh, kind of declining markets. But the question is, is this a fad? Um, you know, every time we see success in the ETF space, a lot of copycats pile in and we know all of them are not going to succeed. Uh, clearly here, all these products are not going to succeed. But we think as an overall category, options-based products are, are likely here to stay. The growth may slow down. By the way, JP, I think, had negative flows in December. But as a category, we think this, this will remain. And primarily because it appeals to a bunch of investors who are either focused on income or maybe currently in, in, in money market funds and kind of view this as an alternative to being in cash. And so, you know, 2024, if, if, if it's a strong year, I think that will be a real test for this category. But right now, we think options-based products are likely to continue to grow, although maybe not at the same pace as the last couple of years. Ty, do you agree with that? And, and I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's funny, as I was thinking about our conversation today, and I, I was thinking about flows into an ETF like JEPI, which, as I'm sure you're aware, took in something like $13 billion last year, even though it underperformed mm -hmm. SPY by 16%. Uh, but I thought about your chart on the flows into TLT in 2023. I included this in my uh, little annual ETF chart fest. But you compared the flows into TLT into currency-hedged ETFs several years back, right, an ETF like DXJ, or even flows into ARKK in 2020 and 2021. Do you think JEPI could be similar here? And that, again, maybe this was 
more of a 2022 or 2023 ETF fad or, or mania. And perhaps it's going to fade, just like we saw with DXJ or ARKK. Do you, or I guess, do you believe this category has real staying power longer term? I, I agree with you on the, on the defined outcome aspect of this. I think there's a real use case for that, especially as retire, you know, folks get older. There are plenty of assets under management for the, for the boomer generation, right, the older generation. So that makes sense for them. But you can always count on the ETF industry to create a craze. A few years ago, it was innovation and disruption. And to me, this most recent covered call craze is, is reflective of that. Um, I think the, you know, the folks at Morgan have done a phenomenal job with marketing this product. It's showing that in the flows. 2022 is the perfect year for it. Um, but if the bull market and stocks continues, I think a lot of investors are going to be unhappy with the design of these products. Now, on the other side of that, I do think this is also reflective of the saturation of vanilla core-based products, right? Those are all taken care of from, from iShares, Vanguard, State Street, and whatnot, Invesco. And so this seems like the next evolution of these option derivative-based products. It's just maybe we need to stop following the leader a little bit and kind of diversify out into the types of strategies that are around there. That's kind of how I'm thinking about it going forward. I think those are all excellent points. I completely agree. Uh, and, and look, we know ETF issuers are always going to try to uh, innovate. And if a product gets hot, like we saw from Jeppy, inevitably, we're going to see copycat products come into the market. Well, one thing I'll mention to both of you, and I don't, I don't want to uh, talk much about this because I promised myself I would stay away from the spot Bitcoin ETF topic. But if you want one potential bull scenario for uh, options based strategies, if we do get spot Bitcoin ETF approval and you start seeing the options ecosystem, you know, on these ETFs flourish and, and develop. And Laura, Laura Kruger and I talked about this earlier. I think we could for sure see options based uh, strategies around spot Bitcoin ETFs. But let, let's stay away I, from I that. that. <laughs> Um, all right, Anakit, the, uh, the fourth ETF trend you're watching in 2024 is uh, momentum and tech-driven growth and risk-on themes. And I, I like this one. So you know how investors piled into money market funds last year, which seemed like a good idea at the time, right? Scoop up 5% plus yields that investors hadn't seen in a long time. But the problem was those investors, or I should say at least the ones who moved out of equities to invest in money market funds, they missed out on an enormous rally. And so now you suggest this could all uh, reverse, that money could come out of money market funds and find a home in the areas that have been performing best, such as the tech sector or the communication services sector, because, of course, we know investors like to chase uh, performance. So g give us some color on that one. I, again, I like that one. So 2023 was, you know, was all about tech and, and growth themes. Those were the best performers. Uh, obviously, a lot of discussion around the Magnificent Seven. The queues were up, you know, 55% in the year. So the question was, you know, what happens this year? It, does that continue or not? And I actually, for this, lean a little bit on, on analysis done by my colleague, Sam Stovall, who's our chief investment strategist. And he's actually analyzed sectors since the 1990s, since the gig sectors were created. And what he's found is that historically, when you're coming out of down years, right, years that weren't so good, the best strategy was to rotate into the sectors that did poorly. So, for example, coming out of 2022, you know, if you rotated into tech and communication services, you do well. And we actually saw that happen last year. Um, conversely, when you're coming out of years that have actually been an up year, like we just did now, uh, the 
historically the best strategy has been to let your sector winners ride. Uh, now, of course, we know that past performance obviously doesn't mean it happens every single time. But just given that context and given that rates may get cut, it's certainly feasible that tech and growth may continue to uh, sustain momentum. The last point I just mentioned is that our fundamental tech analysts, you know, look very closely at a lot of the big big tech names, including the Magnificent Seven. And in their view, valuations aren't stretched yet. They think that actually tech will grow into its multiple. Uh, they think there's probably about 10% EPS growth uh, next year in tech. And so given all of these um, factors, you know, we think that ETF focused on tech and growth will probably sustain, probably with more volatility um, than last year. But it seems likely that that will continue. We've already seen, by the way, kind of some risk on appetite, right? In the last three months, I think IWM, which is a small cap, ETF is up about 12 to 15% in the last three months. So kind of indicative that, you know, uh, growth is broadening a little bit and there's a little bit more breadth in the market as well. Yeah, and your point on valuations, that really caught my attention because, again, you, you noted that CFRA actually believes the tech sector uh, overall is still growing into its multiple, that the largest tech firms have strong balance sheets and, and cash flows. And so maybe the space isn't quite as frothy as uh, some might think. I think that's some, uh, some good food for thought. Todd, I'm actually going to use this as a uh, jumping off point to get into your four contrarian ETF ideas for 2024, because one of those ideas uh, is around high beta growth. And you specifically note the ARC suite of ETFs, which obviously the types of companies ARC traffic's in, those aren't necessarily uh, free cash flow generators like the Magnificent Seven, right? They're not sitting on a bunch of cash on their balance sheets. But um, I, I do think this plays into what Anakit is saying in that and you covered this uh, fantastically last year, we saw over a trillion dollars go into money market funds. And that could start coming out. And maybe after the type of year that the ARK Innovation ETF had, up 68% last year, investors might look to an ETF like that. So I'd love to have you expand uh, on your thoughts around this. Because again, I think you and Anakit overall are aligned here in that we could see some real investor interest and risk on themes. And you have this, again, flood of money that could come out of money market funds. Yeah. So the, the, the two sayings I have in mind with this is, is one is cash is comforting, but opportunity cost is real. Right. And, and you, you mentioned a trillion dollars in the money market funds. You're getting 5 percent yields. We haven't had that in, in decades. But you missed out on a 20 some odd percent S&P return. And I get again, it's part of a portfolio, too. But um, there's real risk of missing major equity-like returns. And then the other thing I've, I want to keep in mind for 2024 is perspective. Uh, great year for equities, but keep in mind a large chunk of equity ETFs are still down over the last two or three years. Right? We still haven't made new highs since the 2022 peak. So to me, that says, okay, maybe if there's a rate cut, money starts to come out of money market funds, and that cash can find its way to equities and ideally power the market higher. And so if the Fed is on hold or doing these kind of little precise cuts throughout the year, that to me says that's a pretty good environment for high beta growth ARC type names. And ARC specifically, the sentiment is far different than it was three years ago, right? When they were taking in money hand over fist every day in terms of creations. Um, I think they had a probably some modest outflows last year, and so that's a lot more room to get aggressive there. Uh, and those are the types of strategies when things get really hot in terms of sentiment that tend to run. So uh, maybe it's not 
the arc suite that you go. Maybe it's something like just small cap growth or whatnot. Um, but I, I do think there is a little bit of a tailwind there for those uh, funds to work outside of any speed bumps we get here in the first quarter of the year. I don't want to get sidetracked here, but I, I am curious if you look at ETFs overall. In 2023, we had about $600 billion um, flow into the products. I had uh, predicted a trillion dollars in inflows last year, and I think one of the reasons we didn't get there was because of what we saw out of money market funds and, and flows going into those. Todd, I mean, do you, do you think we can make a run at a trillion dollars in ETF inflows this year, or is that too optimistic? And obviously a lot depends on what the market does. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. I think it all it is so market dependent, right? You think back to 2020, 2021, we did uh – what, 800, 900 billion, I think, overall? Mm-hmm. That was a runaway market. So you'll get the five, 600 billion, I think, just as a matter of the vehicle. Then the rest will depend on what the market backdrop is like. At least that's how I'm thinking about it. Anna, any thoughts on uh, p- potential ETF flows for 2024? Uh, I just feel like the market is, is maturing a little bit. To me, trillion seems a little aggressive. I, I would say somewhere between 500 to 750 would probably be a good year. No, I think that sounds uh, reasonable. Probably a good bet based on what we've seen the past couple of years. Um, all right, Todd, let's keep moving here. Another potential contrarian idea you noted for this year is industrials. And you highlighted that flows haven't really been going into broad-based industrial sector ETFs. Instead, they've been going into uh, defense-related ETFs like the iShares U.S. Aerospace and Defense ETF, ticker ITA. But you explain how uh, industrials can be a nice complement to mega cap growth, which, which obviously we were just talking about. So, g- give us some quick thoughts around that one. Yeah, I, I, I always get interested when there's a sector that is outperforming but is not endorsed by overly aggressive flows. Right, flows aren't a signal, but they at least help explain market psychology and sentiment of what's going on. And the industrials seem to fit that bill. It's a very diverse sector. There's no weight over 5%, right? It's, it's uh, very spread out among all the constituents, whether you're equal-weighted or cap-weighted. There's no behemoths like Microsoft and Apple and Amazon and whatnot. And we're in the midst of a manufacturing boom, so I like the story there. It's a great compliment if you're worried about your tech and growth exposure within the S&P. I think it's as simple as that, right? I just like this as a nice cyclical compliment to what's going on from the, from the growthier corners of the market. And is it looking at, I guess, the obvious here, something like XLI, the Industrial Select Sector Spider ETF, or other ETFs you might eye in this category? So XLI, RSPN, that's the Invesco Equally Weighted uh, ETF. And then I also, I think this one flies under the radar, AIRR. That's the uh, Rich Bernstein Industrials Renaissance. It's a little bit more of a mid-cap tilt. And so those are the companies I think are really benefiting from money coming back in terms of you know, reshoring or deglobalization, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's a very under-the-radar fund that's performed very nicely. I like you digging deep in the ETF toolbox, uh, as you always do. Anakit, any quick thoughts on the industrial sector? I think Todd makes some interesting points. At, at CFRA, currently, we, have, we are neutral. Uh, we have a market weight on, on industrial, so we have a three-star on, on XLI, for example. Having said that, we do have, if you look at the underlying stocks in XLI, we have four stars on some of them, uh, Caterpillar is one, Uber is another. So that's kind of where we are right now on, on industrials. All right, Todd, your third contrarian ETF idea is actually another sector you're watching, and that's uh, healthcare. And you know how there have been extreme outflows from healthcare ETFs over the past year, which uh, that, that follows several years of hardly any interest in the space. My question here is, um, do, do you think this could be more investors bottom fishing 
the sector because if I look at say XLV, the healthcare select sector spider ETF last year, that was only up about two percent versus twenty six percent plus on the S and P five hundred. So is this investors? And it's not like it had a brutal year, but is this investors maybe looking at an undervalued sector, or do you see some real potential catalyst here besides that? I, I definitely think rotation is a part of it, right? This is for the tactical allocators that are out there that may switch up their, their styles and sectors um, to get away from tech and communication type exposures. I also think, as you mentioned, the outflows are interesting to me, right? Maybe not uh, as, as aggressively positioned as other sectors. And then if you, use, if you look at healthcare's relative performance to the S&P over the last three to five years, it's in the bottom decile of relative performance over the last 30 to 35 years worth of data. So um, that's an extreme. It's interesting to me. Obviously, it's not quite a signal, but the rubber band only stretches so far before you tend to get a mean reverting move back. And I think this almost ties away, ties back into the high beta growth play, that if, if you have a Fed that's on hold or perhaps going to cut, you can dig a little deeper than the XLV and go to something like XBI. That's biotech if you want a little bit more juice and risk involved. And that's another sector that has had a really bad run here. And so I'm just looking at this from a, a mean reverting um, idea, where, and especially given the, the major outflows, too. Anakit, anything that you would uh, add here? to CFRA have any strong views on the healthcare space? Uh, healthcare is actually not a sector where we're currently neutral. That's, uh, on XLV, for example, we have a three-star. But having said that, to, to Todd's point, you know, we have to see what happens with the Fed. If, if we're not right about growth and we see more of a value-oriented year, then maybe healthcare does, does better. Uh, I mean, one of the big stories in healthcare this year was, of course, was Novo Nordisk, right, with the success of Ozempic and Wigovi, but it's actually not held in, in the in the domestic healthcare ETS, and unfortunately that kind of uh, gets missed in some of the, the larger uh, healthcare ETFs. But yeah, certainly an interesting sector to keep an eye on. All right, gentlemen, just a, a few minutes left here. Todd, your fourth contrarian ETF uh, idea for 2024, I would say brings us full circle to where we started our conversation. So you note that Europe could be a place investors look this year. And you, you probably already know what I'm going to say on this. I, I apologize in advance. And that's that international stocks seem to be a contrarian idea every year, right? It's just so tempting. Uh, but like I said earlier, most years we've been disappointed. I know we were talking EM earlier, but even if we look to developed internationals, performed a little bit better, but still significantly uh, underperformed the S&P 500 if you go back over the past decade or, or 15 years. Um, so why are you looking at Europe? Okay. And, and, and this is the one I feel most uneasy about, most nauseous about, because I know the, the rug pull is a consistent factor with uh, European equities. So I like that it has a similar consistency to industrial. So if the industrial idea works out, it should translate overseas. Um, and I also, I, I think, I say Europe broad-based, but I also like the idea of unbundling Europe. Play a little bit more active at the ETF level. Go country by country, right? So Anakin just mentioned Novo Nordisk. I could buy, I believe it's Denmark, E-D-E-N, for my shares, to get my Novo Nordisk exposure along with some of the other companies that are in there, such as the industrial plays. Um, so rather than buying just, say, the Vanguard or iShares Europe, I think you look for the right constituencies that are out there, such as a Denmark or a Germany, right? I think it's going to come down to that point a little bit more active. Um, and again, as a complement, given the industrial exposure across that region to the S&P 500. I'm sensing a theme here with international. Again, it's unbundle, 
uh, whether you're looking at emerging markets or, uh, or developed international. Anakit, just about a minute left. Do you have any quick thoughts on uh, European stocks or even developed international ETFs overall? Yeah, I think the one thing to keep in mind is currency hedging. We saw last year in Japan, for example, that the currency hedged ETFs significantly out, outperformed the unhedged versions. And that's something that you know investors didn't fully take advantage of. So just something to kind of layer on on top of what Todd said, which is thinking about currency hedging as an additional strategy on top of the, the base exposure. No, I think that's a good point. And if you look at an ETF like uh, DXJ, the Wisdom Tree Japan uh, hedged ETF, that had a great year last year. And, uh, I, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the currency hedging craze back in the, the middle part of the tens. But uh, I think you could see that come back uh, e- even more as investors look internationally and, and especially if they want to play an individual country and, and hedge the currency. But Anakit, Todd, uh, I really enjoyed this format this week. So thank you both for going along with this. Again, Happy New Year uh, to you both. And thank you for joining me. Thank you, Nate. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Anakit. That was Todd Sohn, ETF and technical strategist at Strategas, and Anakit Olal, head of ETF data and analytics at CFRA.